Last week, for those of you who were here, we had a kind of dialogue or question session with several of the Vipassana teachers who were uh, attending the local teachers' meeting. Uh, Vimalo, the man who'd been a monk for 25 years from Germany, who has done a lot of wonderful study of kind of reawakening the poetry and mystical in the Buddhist language and texts. And Carol Wilson, who spoke in some ways about the purity and simplicity of the life of of a nun. Well, they've all gone back to their respective centers, and the teacher meetings are finished, and they were basically very good. Um, Really good that we get together and coordinate our work. Ramdas also came and attended some part of them. At some point I asked him, he'd listened to a number of my talks recently. I asked him if he had any recommendations or suggestions on the way that I teach. And he said, I tell too many stories. (laughs) Which is like the pot. (laughs) Speaking of the kettle. Even though he's right. We're both black, so. (laughs) Now, one of the difficulties that came up in the teacher meetings, and it answers a question that someone posed privately at the end of uh, last week's talk, was how do we as teachers deal with our conflict and our differences? And initially, I would have said, not very well. (laughs) But after a number of years of going at it, different approaches and views and temperament and so forth, we've gotten much better at listening to one another. And it took a lot of practice and a lot of looking at ourselves and how we were creating conflict. There were differences of views, and there are among us as teachers, some who are concerned that traditional Buddhism has a life-denying flavor. If you read the practices of the monks, renounce everything in the world and go off. Um, And so some people are afraid, as teachers, that that might lead people to aversion to life rather than wisdom. And then there are the others that say, but that is wisdom. (laughs) And uh, if you water it down and say life is really just a picnic and it's wonderful and what the Buddha said was just have a good time or something, you miss the point of the teachings. And there were different views on the importance or the necessity of concentration, how important it is for wisdom or understanding to grow out of retreats and deep samadhi and strong intensive practice. Or can we change ourselves in a practice of daily life? Or both, which might well be the best answer. How do we work with greed or fear or hatred or delusion? Now, one of the interesting things I noticed in this meeting, and you may have seen it in your own lives, is what I would call the magnetic phenomena. That the closer the two poles of the magnet are to being alike, the two positive poles, for example, the more that they struggle with each other and repel one another, the more polarized they get perhaps like the Baptists and the Anabaptists or the different Zen sects who don't have so much to do with one another or the Neo-Freudians and the object relations people and the the straight Freudians, all of whom have greater difficulty with one another than they do with um, Muslims or Hindus or something outside of their system. In fact, there was a Swami I knew as a teacher who was a very fine teacher and had a system of practice that you were supposed to do. And he didn't mind teaching his system of practice wherever he was invited. He would teach in um, various centers. He would teach in rented uh, conference centers, in old mental hospitals he taught his teachings. He would teach in railway stations, anywhere except in the temples of other swamis or other Hindu centers, because that might pollute his teachings. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm talking about? Somehow the nearer things are to us, often the more threatened we become by them. And I think the threat comes from 
a, a sense in us that we're going to lose our identity. It's not really that the people who are close to us are the biggest problem, but there's a fear of a loss of who we are, of our sense of self. It threatens us that which is near to us. Now, there's all kinds of threats in that category. Fear of intimacy, fear of being compared to another person and not turning out quite as well as you would like to think of yourself. And if we look at our views, because these teachers in this group, although they all were teaching more or less the same thing, had somewhat different views. Not very different, but a little bit different. And it was like conversations about religion anywhere. And one could not convince another so easily. And we have those. We have our religious views or our political views. I know some of you don't, but <laughs> our social views, our views how the world should be run, our personal views that extend particularly to the people we're closest to and how their lives should be run. Do you know the kind of views that I'm talking about, the categories of them? There was a point early on in my marriage where my wife and I were reading a book together uh, that some of you may know called The Goddesses in Every Woman. And it's a kind of a Jungian book by Jean Bolin that describes seven or ten of the great archetypes of the Greek gods, Aphrodite and... Um, who? Persephone and a whole group of the, these great Greek goddesses um, and talks about how a woman might model her life or find herself, her character and personality, particularly following one of these ways of being. And we were both reading it and I read through it and we had this conversation at one point, again, early on in our marriage. And I, after we read it, I said, you know, I like this goddess and that And There was one goddess in there I really couldn't connect with very well. I didn't <laughs> resonate with. And I started to talk about that goddess in not the most enamored and generous terms. And she got very upset. She said, that's me. That's, that's the goddess that I'm the closest to in this book. I knew it. You don't love me. You know? And we can laugh about it now. <laughs> but it wasn't funny at all at the time. It was very painful because there was some ring of truth in it. She said, I knew it. You know, you really want me to be a different person. And ever since we've been together and we got in that kind of a fight. I'm sure you know that kind of a fight anyway. And I really had to look at it. And she started to weep and cry and say... You know, this is who I am. I'm this kind of person. And in our conversation, we really began to look at the ideals or the images that we had brought to our marriage of what we wanted, which was how we were trying to see one another, our projections. And I saw her as this lovely woman and the kind of goddess that I wanted, and she saw me as this man with the kind of attributes that she wanted. And a good part of our early relationship and marriage was a process of disillusionment, serious disillusionment, <laughs> which was getting to see the person who was there rather than all the views and ways and things that we hoped that person would be to fit our fantasy so they would fulfill us. And as we look into views, as the teachers look into views, or as I do in my life, or as I invite you to do this evening, you see that views stem to a great extent out of fear, out of our insecurity. If people aren't the right way, or they're too close, or they're too far, or this or that, it threatens our sense of who we are, our own pride, our own sense of well-being. And when we have strong attachment to views, we do what the Buddha described as going around and bothering other people.
politically, socially, environmentally, personally. <laughs> now, in the meeting, we finally agreed to differ on certain things, which seems rather healthy since the Buddha recommended that holding to views was just one of the ways that one could create suffering in the world. There are a variety of them, and this was a very popular one. Do that. And I'd like... Phenomena appear of different kinds for us, and we make up stories. This is from one Zen teacher. The only Zen you find on the tops of mountains is the Zen you bring up there with you. It's a book I got, sort of the McDonald's of Zen. Zen to go, <laughs> right? But here is Zen master Wang Po, who's one of the greatest of all the Chinese masters of a thousand years. He said, the foolish reject what they see, not what they think. The wise do the opposite. They reject what they think. It's not worth much. Not what they see. They accept what they see. Can you hear the difference? Now, how do we keep getting caught up in the stories that we make about the world? There is this world of appearance or phenomena that arise, and we keep telling stories about it and getting caught in our illusion and in our views and our opinions and separation, in our greed and our hatred, our delusion. How do we get caught in that, and how might we get free? The Buddha said that greed, hatred, and delusion, our attachments, our aversions, and our lack of seeing clearly, are exactly equal to, are the same identical thing as our suffering. That suffering in life and the extent of our greed, hatred, and delusion are the same thing. It's just a different word for that. And that liberation or freedom, what is talked about in every great spiritual tradition, is very simple. It's the freedom from greed, from fear, from hatred, from ignorance. And so the Buddha looked out and he saw people caught in greed or fear or prejudice or hatred or delusion. And out of tremendous mercy and compassion, he said, you don't need to suffer like that. If you're not interested in that, there's another possibility. If your heart becomes pure, if you discover a purity of heart or being that is not caught up in greed and fear and prejudice and hatred and delusion, then everything in the world will be fine for you. You can act, you can contribute, you can make changes, you can do what's necessary, but all of it will be joyful because the suffering of human life is equal to our greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, what's important in looking at this, if we want to find some other way, is to realize how strong these forces are. And I've talked about them before, but I'll remind you again this evening. The Buddha gave one talk, which he called the Fire Sermon. T.S. Eliot did a beautiful poem based on that. The Fire Sermon, he said, the world is burning. What is burning? The eye is burning, the ear the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. What is it burning with? It's on fire with fear, with greed, with attachment, with hatred, with opinions. It's burning with greed, with hatred, and with delusion, with aggression, with ignorance. This is a poem from Galway Canal, a wonderful poet. This is from some of his darker poetry called The Book of Nightmares. In the 20th century of my trespass on earth, having exterminated one billion heathens, heretics, Jews, Muslims, witches, mystical seekers, black men, Asians, and Christian brothers, every one of them for their own good, a whole continent of red men for living in unnatural community, 
and at the same time having dubious relationships with the land and one billion species of animals for being subhuman, and ready to take on the bloodthirsty creatures from other planets, I, Christian man, groan out this testament of my last will. How's that for a statement of what human beings can and have done? There's a kind of despair in that when one really looks at it or encounters it, or a power, as the Buddha said, the eye is burning, the ear that knows the tongue, the mind, the body. I saw a cartoon in the New Yorker not so long ago, and it was a room filled with these little devils. They had horns, and they were each wearing T-shirts with their name on it, pride, envy, jealousy, greed, sloth, and so forth. And there was a TV. They were all watching TV. And the one that was on the TV screen was greed. And they were saying to one another, why does he get so much airtime these days? You know? <laughs> he was preaching, as he does so often on TV. Now, I believe that underlying all of these forces and underlying the views and opinions that we get caught in is a force that's more powerful even than greed or hatred. And that's really the force of fear. And we might look at how deeply that runs our lives. When people come to meditation retreats, and they start to get quiet, and there's this process of the body opening up and the mind letting go, and there's 10 days or a month of silence and really being with yourself with no distraction. At some point, fear will arise. It's inevitable. Fear is kind of the membrane between what we know and something new. And usually, when people get down to it, there are only three fears. The fear of dying, the fear of going crazy, and the fear of loss of control in some way, which it turns out are all the same fear. It's really a deep fear somehow of letting go. So we sit, or we do practice, or we look at our lives and these forces of greed or fear or prejudice or whatever, and we begin to listen, if you can, to how this fear creates attachment to our views. It's not the views that are the problem, but how we get caught in them. Now, I don't want to talk generally, but what are our personal views? Your religious views, your political, your social, your personal. How do we use these views, our attachment to them, to keep ourselves separate? to make a stronger sense of self, to serve as barriers, maybe because we're afraid of getting overwhelmed. How are our views used as a defense? In what ways? Or to what extent is our ego, our false sense of self, built around our opinions and views? To practice is to begin to investigate the nature of ourself and our world and see what creates barriers, what creates suffering. See our, our false self, the separateness and the fights and the wars that come from it. See its pain. And to sense another way, what's called the don't know mind by one Zen master that we can let go of those things. This is Gertrude Stein. There ain't no answer. There ain't going to be an answer. There's never been an answer. That's the answer. <laughs> now, how can we work with our views or our, our opinions, or in fact, with passion or, or that overwhelms us? I don't mean healthy passion, but passion as obsession, or greed, or fear, or addiction, or hatred. The key tool that the Buddha recommended and that is part of this 
path to spiritual life is wakefulness or mindfulness, awareness, seeing clearly. Mindfulness means to be aware of what is present without reacting to it with greed or hatred or delusion. Now, how can we use that in our daily life or retreats? It's really much the same. Suppose some view or opinion arises and you're very attached to it and stuck on it, or your anger or your fear or greed arises. How can you work with it as part of your spiritual life and become free not some other lifetime, but now? The first thing that's necessary is to recognize it. Not a small thing. To recognize that it is a view that you're attached to, or an opinion, rather than the truth. Truth is kind of invisible, particularly when we hold it. it we're so connected with it that it seems obvious. I don't know why everybody else doesn't see it this way, which is, of course, my way. So the purpose of all of these talks, in some way, is to get people to look in themselves and begin to question. And I give you a lot of questions in the talk. What are your views? How do you create barriers with them? How do you create struggle or conflict? Some people at retreats tell me, I've done it myself, they give themselves little Dharma talks through the day. They'll sit and they'll walk and they'll, there's a little voice in here giving them a little Dharma monologue. It's kind of like Winnie the Pooh who sings songs to himself as he does things. You know. It's, there's a great tradition of it. There was one Zen master, I don't remember if it was Hakuin or whoever he was, who used to talk to himself all the time. He'd say, Hakuin, yes, wake up today, I'll try. You know, and there would be these little dialogues talking to himself. So the first step that we have to do is to ask the question, what's here? and recognize it. What is actually here that's going on? And a good signal of the time to ask that question is when you're suffering. If you're suffering, that's a good moment to say, what's going on? And that's how you pay attention without so much delusion. What is here? It's waking up. And beginning to really say what is there. Reporter, were you apprehensive in the 12th inning? Yogi Berra, no, but I was scared. <laughs> it's not fancy, it's not apprehensive, it's not all psychological jargon. I was scared, I was terrified. To tell the truth, there is fear here. That's what I find fear at times, or vulnerability, or anger, or pain, or hurt. I feel hurt. There's grief. There's loneliness. There's shame. There's jealousy. Anybody ever felt jealousy? Blech. Who wants to even admit that? There's embarrassment. They're very hard to admit. There's racism. Remember last week or the week before, someone gave me that flyer that was put on her uh, windshield to join the white supremacists? Well, it seems like the racists are out there. But if we tell the truth, they're not. There's a, a man who, who helps me to teach retreats in New Mexico, who's beginning to learn to teach Vipassana, a psychologist and a good friend named Ralph Steele, who's also a black man from South Carolina initially. And we were talking about racism one day in our conversation. And he said, a few months ago, I was going to Germany. He, he's married to a German woman from Heidelberg. He said, and I went to my black friends and I said, I'm going to, uh, to my wife's family and to this town in Germany. And they all said to me, have a good time. I hope it's a terrific trip and so forth. And then I told my white friends that I was going to go. And most of them said, how do you think you'll be treated as a black in Germany? Or what do you think her family will say? Because you've, you've never been there as a black man. And all these kinds of questions. He said, and it felt really weird. 
He said, and these are friends of mine. My black friends just said, you know, I have a good time, like you'd say to anybody. But for the friends who weren't black, there was some way in which they still saw me, not just as Ralph, another guy, but as having a certain color. And that's how they related to me. It's very subtle, but it's there. Can you hear that? How we see this. So it's not that it's the KKK or it's the white supremacists. It's what's in ourselves when we look at another human being. So the first step is to be really honest and recognize what is there, particularly when we're suffering in ourselves or in conflict with the world around us. That's the first part of mindfulness. Our loneliness, our, our prejudice, our embarrassment, our shame. Then the next step, which is very helpful in this process of discovery of what brings us freedom, is to name it. Not only to recognize it, but to give it a name. Oh, that's shame. Or that is subtle racism. Or that is my fear. Boy, that operates a lot in this relationship. To look for it. And just as recognizing it helps with delusion, giving it a name helps with aversion. When you can give it a name, then you stop resisting it so much. You accept it. It's a spirit of discovery, of making friends with what's present. So you name it. This is shame or pride. And I give... I give pet names to, to these things. As I've said, there's a part of me that has such deep longing in, in the kind of loneliness that feels like a starving child. And so I named, named that Ethi, for Eth the Ethiopian in me, this, this child that can never get enough. And there's a very angry part. He's named Genghis. My wife named him, actually. <laughs> You know, and there's a part of me that when I sit, sometimes I get really sleepy. I named him Mr. Tipsy. And it's just, I'll sit, and at certain points I hit a sleepy place in practice, and I'm like one of those little toys that you get that drinks in the glass and comes up. And that, I'll do that for some hours. And that's a particular state that I've come to understand. There's a place of terror that I've named. And there are people that I work with where a big fear for them is becoming a bag lady. And as soon as they could say, oh, that's the bag lady in me, it made it much better just to name that part, that part of our life. It helps to not be so averse to it, to, to develop a friendship rather than a struggle with these forces. So to recognize it, then to name it. Then what's another step one, one can do in becoming aware of these forces, of our views or our fears or whatever? This is really a key step in spiritual practice, and that is to bring your heart to it and not your mind. Not your rational mind especially. Spare yourself. <laughs> to take this state, this view that you're attached to, or this fear, or this prejudice, or this jealousy, or whatever it is that you've noticed, and touch it with compassion and mercy and kindness. Notice if there's aversion to it. Very often, these are the things that we hate in ourselves. And bring it into your heart. Instead of the aversion, notice that name, the aversion. Hating, hating, I don't like this. And then see, can you touch this with your heart? A way to do it that's useful when you're working with some difficult state inside is to see it as a child. When you face your anger, see it as an angry child. When you face your hunger and your addiction, see it as a starving child. When you face your sleepiness and your, your delusion, see it as a deluded, mixed-up child. When you face your fear, see it as a terrified child. Feel the child. Feel it in your body so that you relate to it not from how you should be or from the mind, but from some much deeper place in your heart that can understand and hold the child that is frightened. 
or the child that is hungry, or the child that's having a tantrum. I mean, what do you do when a child is having a hard time? You pick the kid up, generally. Put it in your lap, stroke a little bit, say, it's, it'll be okay. It'll be all right. I know you're hungry or frightened or angry. So you recognize it, you give it an honest name, and then you put it on your lap and you bring it into your heart. And you know what? That helps with aversion. You have to do it over and over again. It's not like you do it once and then the kid is okay. Anybody ever raise a child? It doesn't work that way. It's like every morning over again. So that helps with the aversion. Then what, you, what can you do? You can then, when you're friendly with it, when you're kinder with it, you can see the pattern, see how it's just comprised of views. Your anger just comes out of your opinions. Your greed and addiction just comes out of your fear. It comes out of the same place, really. And see it. It's really quite ephemeral. It changes. It has no truth to it. No matter whether it's the Hatfields and the McCoys, and they go on for four generations, sooner or later it's going to end. And then somebody will read about it in the history books and say, that was a pretty silly one, wasn't it? They spent a hundred years shooting at each other over what? So it's looking clearly at the karma of this pattern, seeing its consequences, seeing whether it's actually of any value to you. This is called clear comprehension, this part of mindfulness. It's noticing what's true about what you see. Then what to do? You recognize it and name it and bring it into your heart and see what it's value. Does it have value to you? Then, and this is a really useful step in paying attention, feel the pain and the separation that arises from identifying with it. With no judgment, don't say you should or shouldn't be involved in it. I mean, here you are, you've asked it out on a date, you know, and you're already gone out to dinner with it or taken it to the movies or wherever you've gone with it or to some meeting. So you're there. It's not, you don't just kind of open the door and kick it out. But you look at, now am I having a good time on this date? You look at this inner experience and say, is there pain with this? Is there separation? How much pain? See what it's like when it's there. And as you listen to this talk, you might take an example in yourself, if you haven't done that, of some view or attachment or fear or greed or anger that you have. Recognize it, name it. See if you can bring it into your heart as a child, as an angry or frightened child. Look at it clearly and then see whether it's painful to hold it. Does holding help you? Is that useful? What is it like when it's there? And then what's it like when it ends? Because all these states will go away at some point for a while. What's it like when it's not present? Which is a better way for you to relate? And then here's a difficult question. Who would I be without it? If it weren't here, if I've made some identity based on this, who would I be if I let go of this view or this opinion or this prejudice or this attachment? And a lot of times people, wait a second, that would be really hard. I don't even know who I'd be which is actually a very spiritual state, but a bit uncomfortable initially. Who would you be without it? Begin to allow yourself to feel the space of non-identity, of not taking that as yourself. Because it isn't yourself. And you can find some greater identity, identity of the sense of space or emptiness, the identity of the heart. Again, from Zen master Takuan, try not to locate the heart anywhere, 
but let it fill up the whole body. Let it flow through the totality of your being. When this happens, you use the hands where they are needed, you use the legs or the eyes where they're needed, and no time or energy will go to waste. See if you can let your heart be as big as your whole experience, like the sky. And see if there's some other identity beside I want and I like and I dislike and I hate and I believe this and that and that. Because you have some deeper and bigger identity. Much greater than that. So this is feel the pain and separation that it causes and see who you might be if you let go of it. And that leads to the next step. These are all, these can all happen at once. They're different ways of talking about mindfulness. So you don't have to remember the whole list. You can just pick out one piece if you like. Practice the art of letting go. Here's Yogi Berra again. Find you here. One of his baseball players said, I'm in a rut. I can't break myself of the habit of swinging up at the ball. Yogi Berra said, then swing down. <laughs> that simple. We actually can do that. If, if we're willing to, often we can do that. Maybe not always. If there's some deep grief or some very profound addiction and fear, it takes, it takes its time and it needs some respect in that process. But we have this possibility of letting go. And it's the art of spiritual life. What it is is really a shift of identity. It's not so much that you let go because this is bad and you shouldn't have that and you're trying to make yourself a perfect person, but because you sense the pain in some kinds of holding on, in the attachment. And so in a way, it's also called letting be. It's just letting it come and go without being engaged in it, not feeding it, not taking it out on a date or out for dinner or lunch or wherever. Come on, let's go to a wonderful restaurant and indulge ourselves. Saying, no, thank you. The last date wasn't very much fun. It's nice to see you. I'll talk to you later. Learning the art, the inner art, of seeing what causes us pain and just not following it. It will arise. It will test you 20, 30, 50, 100 times. That's okay. That's its job. It's just you doing its job. Are you, do you remember me? Oh, yeah, thanks, never mind. It's just like your kids. <laughs> and then finally, learning to live in the reality of the present, of the now. This place which is eternal, opening to this place without so much attachment to our views, to who we're supposed to be, to where we're going. It doesn't mean you can't act in creative ways and, and serve the earth and care for it, but you can do it from here rather than always clinging at something that's not present. It means, as I've talked about in other evenings, somehow learning to swim, learning to let go and live more in a mode of trust, of some inner peace, rather than trying to control our life in the world so much. And then letting our actions come in the moment out of our heart, out of what we care about, rather than out of our attachments. Hey, Yogi Berra, what time is it? Yogi Berra, you mean now? <laughs> this is Arthur Miller. The word now is like a bomb thrown through the window, and it keeps ticking. It is. This now, this sense of now is incredibly powerful. Because all the stories and all the views and all the ways that we get caught up and all the fear that underlies it is about something that's not here. It's about something that we anticipate. Fear is always about the future. Did you know that? Fear is never about what's here. 
we may like or dislike, or it may be painful or pleasant, it may be hot or cold. That's just duality, kind of doing its dance. Fear is about what hasn't come yet. In the now, things are just as they are. And this is the place of rest. If you're hiking in the Sierras and you see a big bear, you get afraid, right? The fear isn't of seeing the bear down the trail. The fear is what the bear is going to do to you. Then the bear comes toward you and it catches you. And then again, you're terrified. It's not that the bear has caught you that's so fearful, but what it's going to do next, right? Then it bites you. That hurts a lot. It's really painful. You, you know, it's, you, you hate it. It's very unpleasant. But you're not afraid of that. You're afraid, where is it going to bite next? <laughs> then it bites you a few more times, and you realize, this is it. I'm a goner. Then you're not afraid of what it's going to do next. Then you're afraid of what's going to happen next when you die. Can you hear that? The fear is always not what's here, but something ahead. In this space of now. It's not necessary to have fear. In this place of now, we can rest. And certainly there'll be views and there'll be opinions. They're part of being human and having a mind. But you don't have to be so attached or take it so real or seriously, which is what the Buddha discovered. He had a much better time than most people. He didn't suffer because greed or hatred or fear or delusion were not things that he was caught in anymore. And we don't have to suffer in that way either. We can learn this inner art of paying attention, of naming, recognizing, bringing our heart to that part of ourselves, like the child that it is, feeling the pain of that separation or that attachment, and learning the art of letting go, discovering that there is some other identity that is truer and deeper and more silent. Discovering the wisdom of insecurity. The place the Buddha called the timeless, the deathless, the place of our freedom. And it's no place else than in ourselves, in this moment. This is from Kabir. I said to this wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? You always want to be somewhere else. But there are no travelers on the river road and no road. There is no body and no mind. Do you believe there is some place that will make the soul less thirsty? In that great absence you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Don't try to be someone else. Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Can we find that place in ourselves? And the path of spiritual practice is to discover that through our sitting, through the other practices that we might do, through silence in our life, but mostly through our attention. And then to have that be the ground from which we live, even if the kids come and give us a difficult time some days, as they do, that's all right. But to relate to them from that place, rather than the opposite, rather than making our views and our greed and our fear actually our identity. Remember that letter? I guess I'll read this to end, and then we'll take a few questions. That letter I started a couple of weeks ago from the letter to the insurance company. In response to your request for additional information in block number three of the accident reporting form, 
I put poor planning as the cause of my accident. <laughs> you said in your letter I should explain more fully. I trust the following details will be sufficient. I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered I had 500 pounds of brick left. Rather than carry them down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel attached to the side of the building. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the, ba loaded the brick into it. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. <laughs> you will note in block number 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh 135 pounds. <laughs> Due to my surprise of being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. <laughs> Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explained the fractured skull. Slowing slightly, I continued my ascent, stopping when the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep in the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number 11. <laughs> As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I again met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the fractured ankle. The encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell onto the bricks. Fortunately, only my toe was cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks in pain, unable to stand and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind. I let go of the rope. <laughs> this is entitled, On Knowing When to Let Go. I'm sorry about that, Ramdas, but what can you do? <laughs> He's right, actually. Putting that laughter aside, there is something really important that you can consider in your practice about views and about attachments and about fear. And it's not something that you come and you sit once a week or you have a morning sitting practice and that's where it gets worked out. But it's in the repetitive attention to the situations of our life where we begin to learn this dance of what it is that creates sorrow and separation in our lives and the war and poverty and, and prejudice that creates the suffering worldwide and what it means to honor that, to name it, to find a compassion with it, and to free ourselves through an understanding. And that's the invitation of spiritual practice. You might reflect on yourself, or what are the pieces that it's finally time to look at and work with? The ones that you've been identified with long enough and been in pain about long enough. We have a few minutes for questions, if anyone does, or thoughts, please.
like it's going to take over my life. It mm-hmm. doesn't take over my life. It doesn't. No, but I, I, I feel like it isn't really appropriate and that it doesn't, I'm bothered by it. I feel like it's extra, that I don't need it. That the question, she says, is that she's begun a process of painting lately. She has a pretty vivid imagination as she paints, and it brings out what's inside her in an interior way to outside. Then, as that process gets activated, and this can happen in meditation as well, then she starts to have a rich imagination elsewhere, and she'll look around, and a tree will turn into other forms, or a car or a manhole cover will, will have other forms. And she said, it's a little scary, I think, in part as if that might take over her life. It doesn't really do it, but she doesn't like it so much, and she wishes it would go away. How many people here have things that come in your mind that you wish would go away? (laughs) Don't raise your hand. Never mind. Sometimes it's sights. Sometimes it's sounds. Sometimes it's feelings. Sometimes it's thoughts. Sometimes it will be judgments. Have you noticed if you're judging a lot and you wish it to go away, what happens? Anybody notice? It gets more. In fact, the wanting it to go away is what? It's just another judgment. The resistance to things generally makes them worse. If those images come and they come and you could say, there's an image of this tree turned into a snake, and then that turned into a, uh, a beautiful golden scepter, and then that turned into whatever. And you notice that? And it's just as if you were to say the sky is blue, and there are images that arise. If you could say it like the sky is blue, it would be quite fine. The difficulty for us, and your question is a really useful one, isn't so much the experiences that we have. Some are pleasant and some are painful, and there's no way around that. But it lies in the relationship that we take to them. I'll bet there are a lot of people in this room who would trade with you, who would like a vivid imagination and lots of pictures. It's amazing, but it's true. But anyway, they're yours. There's a playful kid in there. Enjoy her. Other questions, please. This was a very appropriate talk to me today um, in that I've been watching what's going on in Marin and watching the land being destroyed and feeling great, great sorrow. And I think it was very appropriate for you to, you know, for me to go inside and to see what's like touching off in me. At the same time, I feel like I have some social responsibility. And if I don't have any views, how do I know when to ask and what to do, mm. how to approach that? I've, I've had been very political in the past and gotten out of that because I don't like the, you know, the fight. Yeah. And I would like to enter it again, but I don't want to enter it in that way. Um, but yet I feel like I have to do something. It's a beautiful question. She's a, this woman says that she's been involved in political fights in the past for, for good causes, and she dropped out because she didn't like the struggle and the fight of it. At the same time, she looks around at the use and the lack of care for the environment. And right here in Marin County, what's happening to the land as it's being developed or abused, and probably more broadly, globally. And how does that relate to what I spoke about tonight, about views? Is that the gist of it? You will have views. It's fine to have views. The place that we get in trouble is when we create an identity, attachment, and then do battle because those views make up what's right and what's wrong and who our self is. So that if you carry those views into battle, what you find is you create conflict wherever you go. And so you can have a revolution and it topples the government and then those revolutionaries fight, the the new revolutionaries come up and there's no end to it. There is, as I'm sure you are aware, another way. And really what I hear your question about is how do I access that other way? You read about it in Gandhi or you look at Martin Luther King or you look at whoever inspires you, people who really care 
to the bottom of every cell of their being about life and about one another, but yet don't do it from a place of fight. What is that other place? What is the source of that strength? And I don't want to give you a simple answer because it's not a question that a few sentences could answer. But there is a place within us of wholeness, of well-being, of a kind of inner strength, the strength of the heart, that's greater than all those sorrows and those struggles, that's not afraid of the pain, that's not even caught up not even afraid that maybe the earth will go down in flames. I mean, there is that fear, but there's some place that touches something greater, which is the force that created all of this. And if we can find that, touch that place of fearlessness in ourselves, or of peacefulness, or of wholeness, then we can go and really work and care for the earth, the rainforest, the the land, not out of a place of aggression, but out of a place of very deep commitment because we are connected with that, because it's ourself, as if it were our own body. And in one way, the practice of meditation is to discover that place in yourself, that place of both emptiness, of selflessness, and therefore of connectedness. Being nothing, I am everything. All I could say then is that that's your work, and it's wonderful work. Were you going to say something more? Is that There's this passage I read from Martin Luther King. I've read it a lot of times, but it always inspires me, so I'll read it once more. In the difficulty of the marches, he said, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. But we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win your freedom in the process. That's a place of action that's not one of attachment to opinion, but to some connection to some deeper truth that's extraordinary. And we have that. What if you're dealing with people without conscience or who's a sociopath or, or a system that's that way? I don't know the answer to that. I can't tell you, t- quite honestly. Um, there are some people like Gandhi who would just give their lives at that moment and say, "This is these principles and this which I value is greater than whether I live or die, and be a martyr in some sense, or, or, or live from those principles. There are others who might find some other way to work with it. I don't have a simple answer. And when you find yourself in that situation, I wish you luck, you know, or if I do, I wish you well. But I know that for the most part in our lives, we don't have to work from a polarized place. And for the most part on this earth, although there may be circumstances that are incredibly difficult, and I don't know how you should deal with them, that if we want to create peace, or if we want to live freely, free from greed, hatred, and delusion, the place to start is in ourselves. And that's the best that I can say for an answer. wish you well in those times. I don't know what I'd do. You know, I don't know whether I would kill another person. I'm not sure. And having been around a war in Vietnam and Cambodia, um, what it does to people is, is awesome. And so I don't know. Let me give you a minute of announcements and then we'll sit for a minute. There's a basket for donations. The tradition for the past 2,000 years and more has been that teachings be given as freely as possible so that in Asia you can be in a monastery and they teach you and care for you and feed you all for free. We want to keep that alive in this country 
And to make that happen, it means that people who value spiritual life, um, particularly involved in Buddhist practice, if you support the building of centers or myself as a teacher and so forth, then we can make it free for anyone who comes. And that's wonderful to do.